Health and Wellbeing Queensland acknowledges the Yagara and Turrbal people, the traditional custodians on the lands on which this podcast was recorded, and the traditional custodians on the lands and waters on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present, for they hold the memories of the traditions, cultures and aspirations of Australia's First Nations people. So even from a really young age, so, you know, young school children around five, um, getting them involved in simple decision-making around, you know, their lifestyle or around food uh, is really important. They might not necessarily understand why and you shouldn't expect them to understand why they're doing that behaviour, but it's more about getting them interested and involved and excited about, say, you know, cooking or growing a herb or, you know, a new activity. Um, And so it might be simple questions about what vegetable do you want to try this week? Um, Or if you're going to do a new activity, is it going to be swimming or did you want to do some other sport? Like that kind of sort of simple decision making. Welcome to the Clinician's Guide to Healthy Kids, a podcast series for health professionals brought to you by Health and Wellbeing Queensland's Clinician's Hub. I'm your host, Dr Sam Manger, and in this series, we'll be diving deep into the topics that matter most in childhood weight management. We'll be talking to Queensland experts across a variety of topics, including sleep, disordered eating in higher weight children, prevention, and healthy growth with healthy diets. Let's get started. Today, we are going to discuss food and nutrition and healthy diets for healthy growth. We know that most medical or nursing professionals will have not received a huge amount of formal training or education in nutrition, which can make it confusing to know what we should be recommending to our patients. To help us navigate this topic today, we have invited Dr. Tash Bilic to join us. Dr. Tash is a postdoctoral researcher and paediatric dietitian. She's worked in two tertiary paediatric weight management clinics in Melbourne and in Brisbane. Her doctoral research explored approaches to weight management in children with neuromuscular conditions. Thank you so much for joining us, Tash. Thanks so much for having me. Now, please tell us a little bit about yourself and, and you know what you love about this position. You've obviously done a lot of work already. You've worked across Australia. So, so why? So, I mean, I'm a paediatric dietitian, as you said. I've been a dietitian since 2016 and have worked across um, a number of different roles in clinical dietetics and in research. Um, and my passion is really uh, paediatric weight management. And I think what I love about it is just the diversity, both in my practice and, and the patients or clients that I see. So um, one clinic can be really diverse in terms of all the different issues that you might face and uh, approaches you might take. So that's what I'm loving about it. Um, and it's a real challenge and, um, you know, such a, a problem in Australia and that's why I'm really enjoying working in this space at the moment. Mm, and it makes, as we said at the beginning, it makes can make a major difference to people's lives. And Funny that, healthy diet can improve people's lives. <laughs> so let's, let's start right at the beginning. What does a healthy diet look like for school-aged children? Yeah, so for school-aged children, it can look, you know, a little bit different depending on your cultural background or, you know, your family situation. Um, in Australia, we use the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating to to guide our practice as a dietitian. Um, and so that's focusing on eating most foods from the five food groups and limiting those uh, sort of discretionary or extra foods. Um, and as children get older, the amounts of each food group uh increases um, and changes. So um, that's really the core of what we base all of our uh, dietary management off is that Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. Um, And we, um, 
dietitians working in weight management could probably all agree with me that, you know, it's um, about including those discretionary or extra foods, but, you know, in a balanced way and um, having a good balance between those court-filled food groups and uh, those extra foods. So you mentioned the five food groups there. And there's obviously lots of detail, lots of different types, but what are those five food groups? Yep, so we have grains and cereals, mostly whole grain um, would we, we'd be aiming for. Um, we have fruits, we have vegetables, we have dairy and alternatives. Um, and so alternatives would be, you know, plant-based alternatives to dairy foods. And then we have uh, protein foods, so meat, chicken, fish, um, legumes and beans. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned right at the beginning, which I thought was a, a really important point to say early, which about the cultural diversity, because obviously there is enormous, within a country like Australia, enormous cultural diversity, which is one of the great things about Australia. Uh, so how do you how do you approach that in the sense of, you've obviously got the broad categories, but you're always thinking about how can you adapt it according, is that about right? Yeah, exactly. And I always encourage families to think back to what their traditional foods are and work with those and, you know, get excited about preparing those foods. Um, And that might look different. It might look a bit different to our, you know, the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating um, plate, which you might have seen posters of. Um, So their diet might look a little bit different to what's on that plate just because of that diversity in food. Um, But usually those traditional diets are very good and are based on the principles of the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating anyway. Mm, yeah, when you look at some of the healthiest diets around the world, whether it's Okinawan diets or Nordic diets or various other sort of blue zone diets, yes, there's differences in the specifics, but there's definite agreement across the broad exactly. categories. Yeah, mm. and whole foods, you know, mostly plants. So, so how can parents establish healthy eating habits in their children? Yeah, so it really starts from a really young age. So from the time bubs start solids, um, and. It's about introducing variety from that young age and um, exposing them to as many foods as possible um, and setting up a really positive food environment at home. Um, One thing that I like to focus on when starting solids, um, of course, there's the iron-rich foods we know babies need. um, And then there's introducing allergens is another really important thing. But another thing would be introducing vegetables and trying not to mask the taste of vegetables amongst sweet stuff like fruits. children love sweet foods, so trying to get them used to the taste of vegetables, that more bitter, savoury sort of tasting foods um, is something that I like to explain to to my clients. Um, So introducing those types of foods from a young age and making sure that they're repeatedly exposed to those new foods um, is a good first step. Um, I also mentioned setting up a positive food environment, so making sort of family meals um, together without distractions without screens, just the norm in that in that home um, and trying to make most of the foods available in the house um, more of those five food groups rather than those discretionary foods and making that kind of the norm within the home. Um, I think parents um, are facing a huge challenge with uh, advertising of, of discretionary foods all over the place and so if they can make that home as positive as possible um, in terms of the food environment. I think that's a good, important step because those outside influences are hard to hard to come up against. Yeah, they're very strong. There's no doubt about that. So you've mentioned a number of things there, positive food environments, and I want to just dig down into that a little bit because it's very interesting. You mentioned around you know, uh, co-created uh, you know, food 
you know, recipes and cooking together and that sort of stuff. But I do wonder about the concept of fun and play because mm. that's such an important thing for young It's important for all people. Adults have forgotten it a little bit, so we need to have a bit more fun. Uh, but, for example, one thing I find can be a nice little clinical tip, as it were, is get some of favorite people's favorite music going, almost like a jukebox, you know, so, you know, you, Kevin, the six-year-old Kevin, and, you know, you, Shane, the 14-year-old, can pick your favorite songs, and then Dad will pick his favorite song, which is usually pretty embarrassing, and we'll go <laughs> Mum with her favorite song, you know, so, so you can sort of turn it into an interactive, fun time, uh, you know, positive is a great word, but we also remember that this is actually, it's positive for a reason, you know, you actually enjoy doing it, so I wondered what what ideas you had around making it more positive, enjoyable and facilitating that. Yeah, and they're really great points. Um, So I think uh, shared meals, so having all the food in the middle of the table, allowing kids to serve themselves is a really um, nice way to... um, It not only sort of encourages that kind of sharing um, of meals, but also for them to regulate their own appetite as Mm. well because they have control of what they're putting on their plate. Um, understanding where their food is coming from as well. So even if it's growing one pot of herbs, if you're living in an apartment, um, that's absolutely fine. At least the kids are sort of learning about where food is coming from, how long it takes to grow, how good it can taste if you grow it yourself. Um, So they're all really positive things. And um, I think schools are doing a really good job as well by introducing school gardens um, and teaching kids um, where food comes from and how to grow food. Uh, So, yeah, that's really great to to see um, all of those things happening in schools as well. Mm, yeah, that's some really good tips. I like the idea of engaging the senses, you know, the, the smells, the sights of different foods, so whether it's on the table or you're growing it. I, I agree, uh, and I could go on a long tangent there. I, I gr- I've grown vegetables for about 12 years, the last 12 years, and it was actually one of the well-being behaviours that got me through my hardest, you know, intern doctor years. So, mm. you know, knowing where food comes from can be, you know, oh, that's where a broccoli looks like when it's, <laughs> when it's growing. It grow from this guy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so that can be a great... Uh, engaging source. You mentioned there around uh, textures, and I do think, I wonder about your insights around younger, you know, we're talking young, young children, letting them just get their hands into it, and, you know, the mess can be a bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand you're pregnant, so you'll experience this soon, but uh, <laughs> but perhaps it's about embracing that, that chaos a little bit and letting kids squeeze the carrot into mush and that sort of stuff. Is Are these good behaviours to encourage? Yeah, definitely. And that's um, for, for children who are not willing to put foods in their mouth and chew them and actually t- taste them and try them, we definitely encourage um, as much play as possible and no pressure to t- put it in your mouth and even taste it as long as they're being exposed to it and they can just look at it, poke it, touch it, squeeze it. All of those types of things are really good. Yeah, okay, great. And... Uh, then you mentioned the position of foods. You, you so, mentioned so many interesting things here. And I sadly, you know, we just want to go down this, this, these uh, corridors. But um, p- the position of foods to try and offset and negate the, I suppose, macro environmental circumstances with, as you say, advertising and, and all that. So how do you, what recommendations do you make around a so kitchen, pantry, fridge or food storage places to optimise that? Mm. So I guess empowering families to become a bit of a food detective. So all of those claims that you see on TV or on the front of packaging, 
actually look a little bit deeper into that and think about what's actually in that food um, and trying to fill um, the pantry or the fridge with foods in their most natural form, I guess, is um, one approach to take. So focusing on those five food groups um, to be predominantly the food within the home um, and trying to limit those kind of extra foods. And, And even if it's the house doesn't contain many of those extra foods, but you feel like an ice cream one night. So you go out to the shops and you actually make it a bit of a thing where you go out and and get an ice cream and that's absolutely fine. But if it's not available all the time in the house, it makes it much easier to make sort of healthier decisions around food. Mm. Yes. I mean, some of the things that I can't say I've done it for food too much, but for other, let's say, tempting behaviours like the phone or screens, that sort of stuff, sometimes I find putting it in a little box and just saying, you know, treats only or something, you know, just an extra little barrier can make a little, give people a chance to sort of think, is this really what I want? Is this really what I'm looking for? Now, you mentioned a few things there, which I'll simply highlight and won't uh, won't prod any more questions on it, but it's around diversity of foods, ensuring adequate iron, because that's really important in young growing children that they have adequate iron. It's not uncommon to see iron deficiencies and allergens. So exposing those allergens uh, relatively early to that diversity so that we reduce the chances of later sort of atopic conditions allergic conditions. Excellent. So coming back to your professional role, what does a dietitian do when they see a child and their family for weight management support? How long does it take? Um, and what would you expect a health care professional in primary care to do? You know, is it feasible that we can do this also? Or, or we'll perhaps talk about a condensed version next. Yeah, yeah. So um, for a, a standard initial consult in a weight management setting, for me, it would take 45 minutes to an hour, so quite comprehensive. Um, so firstly, and this may be with within a multidisciplinary setting or it might be um, sort of a dietitian-led clinic. Um, so I would firstly start exploring past medical history and really focusing on any um, medical history that may have contributed to excessive weight gain or any complications due to weight gain. Um, so, you know, all the metabolic complications that we know are well linked with a um, with a, a weight above a healthy weight. Um, so high cholesterol, hypertension and understanding if there are any of those issues there. Then exploring social history, so family structure, what's school like, um, what kind of... Uh, social environment might be impacting on that young person's ability to participate in activity or, you know, eat a a balanced diet. I would then assess their growth using uh, growth charts, so either standard growth charts or if there's a specific uh, condition that the child has, I would use those as well to assess their overall uh, weight status. Um, And then I would look into their behaviours in terms of sleep, activity, screen time, um, and understand their routines um, and the behaviours around those factors. And then I would get into the food, lastly. So um, I would dive into a typical day um, for that young person, um, so taking a diet history. I'd be really focusing on some key things, so portion size, consumption of takeaway food or uh, fast food, uh, sugary drinks. Um, and then I would be looking at um, the five food groups and ha- and doing an estimate of how much of each of those food groups they're eating each day. Um, and then I would look at the difference between weekends and uh, weekdays or school holidays and, and school day um, and see what those differences are. And I would do that for activity and sleep um, and screens as well. I rarely calculate uh, 
calorie intake or energy intake or, you know, protein or anything like that. In some situations, I would go that far, but usually I don't need to. It's that more qualitative assessment of their diet. Um, and so, yeah, I usually wouldn't do that. Um, and then I would sort of formulate an assessment of what I think has contributed to the weight gain based on all of that information and then work with the family uh, together to set goals um, that are going to be realistic, um, that they uh, are both agreeing on as well. So clinician and family are agreeing on um, and making sure they're going to be, you know, effective for weight management or addressing the metabolic health issues or whatever it might be and actually going to be achievable as well. Hmm. I liked how before getting into the specific dietary assessment, because one assumes that one can sort of, well, let's just start with, where do you, where do you eat when you first wake up? But you, you talked more about context. So the biopsychosocial and cultural context and even spiritual context can be, can be relevant. Exactly. Um, first, and then as you said, the whole of person factors, the different lifestyle domains. So there's, there's how's your sleep, physical activity, because that'll give you an overall picture. But obviously, whilst we, in a way, artificially... Uh, are doing one episode on you know diet and next one physical activity. People are humans; they're whole whole persons, and so they will be doing lots of things, and these things will feed into each other in some aspect. We'll be back after this short break. The Queensland Country Women's Association Country Kitchens Program aims to support regional, rural, and remote Queensland communities to improve their health by adopting healthier lifestyle practices. The program offers hands-on nutrition workshops to the public as well as delivering healthy eating and lifestyle initiatives for local communities and a wide range of resources, including healthy recipes and simple steps to modify meals to make them healthier. Find out how this program can help your community by visiting qcwa.countrykitchens.com.au. And now back to the show. So, Lots of healthcare professionals listening today work in primary care and, uh, like me, they're GPs and they may be quite short of time. If we're lucky, we have maybe three to four problems to deal with in 15 minutes. So what are the main things they could ask and we could ask about diet to help make healthier changes? Mm. So I don't even think those working in primary healthcare need to do a full diet history or go into the details of portion sizes um, and what you know the dietitian would usually do. There's a, a few key things that you can focus on. Um, so the first thing would be sugary drinks. So that's a really good place to start to either cut out sugary drinks altogether or if that's not feasible, reduce them um, or trying to transition them away from sugary drinks. Um, the, the second thing would be takeaway foods and fast food. So um, if their family is consuming a lot of takeaway foods or fast food, understanding why that might be. Is it that they are time poor? Is it that they don't have very good ki- uh, cooking facilities at home? Is it that they don't know how to cook? So understanding those barriers and then that might help guide referral pathways in terms of you know the situation. Um, then asking about discretionary snacks. So um, typically school lunch boxes in Australia have quite a number of discre- discretionary snacks in them. So, um, you know, it might be bars or chips or sweet biscuits or muffins. Um, so trying to focus on a discrete item like the lunchbox can be really helpful. So trying to remove as much of those snacks as possible, swapping them in uh, for foods that actually contain some nutritional benefit. Um, So again, focusing on those five food groups, trying to 
put those into the lunchbox and take out those kind of extra snacks. Um, and another thing that is really important for teenagers is regular meals. So many, I would say most teenagers I see are potentially skipping breakfast and lunch mm. um, and so not eating anything until they get home from school mm. where their body is starving and wanting to go for those high carbohydrate, refined um, carbohydrate snacks um, and then eating a lot in the afternoon, a lot in the evening as well. Um, so regular timing of meals and that might not be a full lunch for someone who's never eaten lunch at school or hasn't for a number of years. Um, it might be just a small snack for lunch as a starting point and building that up slowly. So I think there's some key things that can be focused on there in terms of diet. Um, and I think the other important thing is just sort of stepping a bit away from diet is understanding the family environment and any psychosocial barriers that there might be to preparing healthy food um, or accessing healthy food or, you know, participating in physical activity. So whether there's financial constraints, whether there's, um, you know, stressors happening at home. Um, so understanding those and that can also help guide referral pathways that are targeted and, and appropriate for that family. Yeah, great. Thank you. There, certainly the concept of Predo's principle comes in here for me. What's the 20% we can do that re yields 80% of results? And I think there's truth in that in general. And all my GP listeners, they'll know this feeling well where we're just thinking, what are those high yield questions we can ask? And when it comes to uh, dietary changes, you know, as you said, those sugary drinks, discretionary, spend, uh, discretionary foods is where most of the damage happens. And we can do a lot by targeting those. You mentioned there around then zooming out a little bit and thinking about the family environment, the social context, including their time or what's in their day, because a stress and hungry body will be a body that very naturally is seeking high calorie foods. It's not a case of willpower or strength or weakness or anything like that. It's just a case of when you're stressed and when you're hungry, you go for high calorie foods and it's it's hard to control yourself, hard to any, for any human to control himself in that situation. So of course, they're going to go for the less healthy things because they are high calorie instant foods. Now, clinical guidelines like the uh, Royal Australian College of GP guidelines encourage the focus to be on a health healthy behaviour modification to reduce BMI for younger children, but for adolescents post-puberty, it does support weight loss. So what would be your focus for older teens or even young adults needing weight loss? So it's really not too different. So we do focus on gradual weight loss in that older age group, um, but we're still focusing on the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, those five food groups um, and all of the you know print basic principles that I've spoken about. Um, we're not looking to um, count calories and reduce them um, in most situations. Sometimes that's indicated um, in very... Uh, particular situations, uh, but it's really that diet quality that we'll still focus on. Um, ultimately, weight loss happens when there is less calories going in and more calories going out through physical activity, but it's really not that simple and it's really not as simple as eating less, doing more. There's so many complicated factors that have an influence on weight. Um, so, but what we can do with diet is is just focusing on um, trying to reduce discretionary foods as much as possible, um, understanding, you know, the differences in, you know, teenage eating habits or young adult eating habits. Do they have uh, um, a part-time job? Do they access their own money? Do they go 
out with friends and have more fast food or sugary drinks, all of those sort of teenage behaviours. Um, so kind of focusing on the age-appropriate developmental st- uh, stages for that child um, would be sort of the main difference between that and a younger school-aged uh, child. Yeah, it's it's a good point you raise there about calories. It's not as simple as calories in, calories out, or sometimes you hear it's it's an old myth that's dying slow is that all calories are equal. You know, so one calorie of sugar is the same as one calorie of broccoli. Like, mm-hmm. no, they're yes, they're both calories in that sense, but they're metabolic effects, the hormonal effects, the neurotransmitter and microbiome effects of those foods are completely different than all, obviously, the packages of antioxidants and phytonutrients that they come with. So there's actually a, 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 a huge difference between different calories and photocombers. So we need to be very careful about that. Now, that sort of leads me to my next question, which is then do you, there's always a latest diet and this must be one of your banes as a dietitian. <laughs> um, but do you ever support diets that get really, you know, quick results, like a six-week intensive calorie restriction or a reduced carbohydrate diet or, or any other sort of type of, you know, what's out there or... Mm. For 99.5% of the time, no, it's never those types of diets. In some very special circumstances, always within um, guidance from um, a paediatrician or a doctor um, and the multidisciplinary team, we may do a more restrictive diet um, if it's clinically indicated, but usually we'd never do that for teenagers. Um and so, yeah, we find those kind of um, restrictive diets work in the short term, but not in the long term. Um, we also need to think about quality of life and, you know, the psychosocial impact that, you know, restrictive eating might have on a young person, especially when they're going through a really cha- challenging time in teenage years. Um, so we'd rarely use restrictive diets or, or any kind of fad diet, Um only under, you know, very exceptional circumstances. Yeah, because what matters is the results, right? In the sense of short but medium and long-term results. And so you mentioned there sometimes with those really restrictive diets, yes, they can work. Usually people are very exuberant and excited about it for the first period and then that's, that can be, they can be so restrictive as to be prohibitory and hard to adhere to long-term. But then it builds in, as you said, that, almost anxiety and stress around certain food groups, which then snowballs into other problems. And we know stress isn't great for healthy lifestyles, full stop. So we've got to be very careful about what we're potentially, or what's being perpetuated. Mm -hmm. So whereas the, uh, a broad, healthy, whole food diet with its Australian healthy eating guidelines or or Mediterranean diet, uh, gives a lot of flexibility there for different, you know, culturally appropriate foods. But you, you have seen, obviously you've been a paediatric dietitian for some time, so you've seen that a good quality whole food, you know, Mediterranean-style diet or whatever cultural variation on that 
works, you know, medium and long term? Yeah, it does work, but I'm not going to pretend it's easy to implement. And there's so many factors working against families, um, especially when there's also genetic predisposition to weight gain as well. Um, there are, you know, physiological factors working against them, environmental factors. Um, so it's it's really challenging and it's, it's easier said than done, um, but it does work. Um, and that's what is going to improve health in the long term. Mm, yeah. I think it's important to highlight that it can be challenging, but it's it's like a lot of things. So I take obviously the analogy of smoking sometimes is that the average uh, success in smoking cessation at 12 months without any support is about five, three to five percent people who quit will, will stay quit at 12 months. But with the best support, you know, whether that's uh, pharmaceutical support, quit line, others, you know, group-based supports or stress management, that goes up to about 25% plus. And so just because 75% of people still don't quit doesn't mean it wasn't worth it. They're still you're, you're taking something from 3% to 20%. It's an eight-fold difference. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what we're aiming for here. So to be realistic about it, I suppose, um, and just accept that we, we are really trying to help people here and we will help a lot of people, but not everyone can change just as they turn up to the clinic and just they're not ready or to there are so many social barriers there that it's going to take a much longer investment to do so. So let's talk about a, a little bit of solution and uh, some, some what we can do here. So what are some healthy nutrition swaps then? If we, we're saying that this can be a challenge, the thing we've talked about the different food groups, but now let's get into a bit of fine detail around some of those swaps that can you can make in a person's, you mentioned say lunch boxes, for example, make a huge long-term impact to diet improvement. Mm. I guess so starting with the the lunchbox would be um, removing any of the sugary drinks, um, any of the juice um, and adding in just water or plain milk as a drink. That would be probably the first swap you would make. Um, And then sort of sticking on the lunchbox, um, uh, those discretionary snacks we spoke about, um, trying to add in, if possible, any type of vegetable into the lunchbox would be great. Low-fat dairy foods, grainy, you know, whole grain uh, crackers, you know, swapping things like the white bread for a more grainy option, any kind of processed meats in a sandwich, and even if you're just adding in vegetables to increase fibre, which will increase fullness for longer, um, that's a really good addition. Um, and then sort of with the takeaways and the, the fast food, any uh, sort of simple meal that you can prepare, even if it's super basic, eggs on toast, um, baked beans on toast, um, you know, the handbag chooks that you get from the supermarket, one of those with a salad that's already cut up and some microwave rice, that's going to be much cheaper, much better for you and um, probably much tastier than, you know, a lot of takeaway or fast foods. Um, So, even if the cooking skills aren't there or the cooking facilities aren't there, those really simple meal preparations are really important to know and really important for dietitians to have a list of those to give um, their families so that uh, people are aware that, okay, I'm going to save $10 every day if I can just make some simple things at home. Yeah, because processed food is not as cheap as they try and 
tell us it is. It's actually yeah. quite expensive. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. The money saving there is an interesting point. Um, yeah, I learned from a dietitian, one of my colleagues recently, actually, that if you put raw nuts into the microwave for like I think it was thirty seconds, and I, I've, done, I've been doing this ever since, that you roast them. Oh wow! You know that quickly. Yeah. And um, so I was put a whole bunch of cashews and other things into the microwave the other day. In thirty seconds, they just the flavour came out. They tasted amazing. And then you throw them into your salad. Yeah. It just it's all, there's lots of little quick tricks like that. So as you say, having a hand out there can be really helpful than just going through some of those options. And so, what about for kids on the go and snacks? You know, whether that's young kids, but then I'm also in my mind thinking of adolescents who consume an enormous amount of calories and food. So we kind of want some, um, you know, some, some snacks that are off the shelf, ready for them to go. Yeah, um, and the nuts are a great one for kids over five as long as it's not, and there's no allergies, of course, mm. and, you know, not allowed in pretty much most schools. Um, so nuts are a great one, the unsalted variety. Um, popcorn, um, little, I always encourage snack boxes that give a little bit of variety, so any type of cut-up vegetable, a couple of slices of cheese, some rice crackers or some grainy crackers or, you know, rice wheels, um, any kind of dairy foods. Um, so trying to opt for, um, you know, low fat or the lower, more natural sort of, uh, varieties of yogurt or milk. Um, uh, you know, things like, uh, peanut butter, um, avocado, hummus, tzatziki, any of those, um, uh, sort of dips or spreads on some crackers is a really good thing just to have ready to go. Um, or just, you know, some cheese and biscuits is great. At least it's got a little bit of protein, a little bit of calcium. It's going to be a bit more satisfying than say a packet of chips. Yeah. And the satisfying point is another important point to raise because satiety is, is key to everything we're talking about here. And so the foods that will often in- encourage long-term and satisfying satiety is is protein foods and fiber-based foods. So we've got those vegetables, we've got the cheeses, we've got some nuts for healthy sources of protein, and then people will feel satisfied and full and they'll have all those beautiful biochemical, physiological responses going in their body, which is good for them as a general rule. Uh, So it'll make them feel better, give more energy and all that as well. I like to throw in dip there sometimes, whether it's homemade dip or or even store-bought dip, as long as it's not like, uh, you know a bowl of sugar, but, you know, yeah. something like sweet potato or hummus or something like that, which yeah. can be a really nice way to spice up their their snacks. One of the little tips which uh, I came across a, f- a number of years ago now, which I really liked, was having a bowl on the in the common place in the kitchen or living room or whatever, uh, just a bowl of chopped vegetables. Yeah. Because it's quite in- it's interesting, well, and nuts and other things, but just having it there... And people just walk past, you know, they just walk past and put one in their mouth, walk past, put one in their mouth. And it's sort of this incidental uh, behaviour change or passive behaviour change as opposed to saying, make your time, eat this, do this. It's just like putting them around people's environments, they'll just naturally start eating healthier foods. So make it a bit easier for us too. And sometimes that's all you need is just something to tide you over till the next meal. You don't need a full snack, but just some cut up vegetables that you can just munch on. Graze on. And then you're not you know, ravenous at the next meal. Yes. We'll be back after this short message. Unhealthy weight is one of our greatest public health challenges. Two in three Queensland adults and one in four children live with overweight or obesity. We need to shift the dial. That's why Health and Wellbeing Queensland has created Clinicians Hub for You, our clinical workforce. Clinicians Hub is a digital ecosystem of initiatives, resources and tools, including this podcast series. 
for multidisciplinary health professionals to support best practice prevention, identification, treatment and management of overweight or obesity and it offers a wide variety of clinical tools and training to help you transform health for children, adults and families. Find out how Clinicians Hub can help you at hw.qld.gov.au forward slash hub. And now back to the show. Okay, so what age would you uh, make sure children are involved in, in the... In, we're talking a lot about the behaviour change and choices around food. So what age do you really encourage children to get involved in that? Mm. So even from a really young age, so, you know, young school children around five... Um, getting them involved in simple decision-making around, you know, their lifestyle or around food um, is really important. They might not necessarily understand why, and you you shouldn't expect them to understand why they're doing that behaviour, but it's more about getting them interested and involved and excited about, say, you know, cooking or growing a herb or, you know, a new activity. Um, And so it might be simple questions about, what vegetable do you want to try this week? Um, Or if you're going to do a new activity, is it going to be swimming or did you want to do some other sport? Like that kind of sort of simple decision-making where they're sort of getting involved in their own, in their own, um, you know, healthy lifestyle. Um, Obviously, as they get older, then they have a bit more say and they can understand the role of, you know, the impact on their health. Um, But from that young age, I think they can still be involved. But they just may not understand the link between health and that behaviour, but it, at least it's getting them involved and excited. Mm. Yeah, the, the the point there around autonomy is really important, isn't it? So it's a reminding children that, yeah, they're not the bosses of the household, but they have autonomy and they have their own power mm. as well. And so giving them the right to make choices, as you say, so what should we cook this week? Here's our ingredients. So define the limits, as it were. Here's our ingredients, but you choose within this, what should we do? What should we cook? And be a fun exercise. I got three children and one of my children is is four turning five and she loves getting into the kitchen with mum. It's one of her favourite activities. So getting the stool up and watching things and just being, obviously you've got to watch your fingers with those knives, but (laughs) it's, uh, you know, it's still, it's quite a lot of joy to see. One, you mentioned there around, they may not understand their mechanisms and I, I agree, but there are also ways around that. I mean, one of my colleagues and friends, uh, Professor Felice Jacker at the Food and Mood Centre in Deakin, she wrote a book called There's a Zoo in My Poo. And that's a really fun kids' book about the microbiome and how food interacts with that. And so I'm, I've talked to my children about that and simply said, you know, it's not very good for the bugs. The good bugs in your gut, it kind of hurts them a little bit. And they're like, oh, dear, okay, better not have that. You know, so it, it's, she's hit the nail on the head I think it really relates to children around this idea of good bugs and we've got to look after our little environment and that sort of stuff so what if what if parents respond though to all of these great ideas that their kids are fussy and flat out refuse to eat vegetables because that's definitely a reality for for a lot of well for all of us I think um, at some point in the uh, career of being a parent or that the parent will give them like a less healthy food Otherwise, the child, you know, the child won't eat anything, so mm. they just give them anything to get some calories in. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's tricky, and it's there's no one solution, and you do have to just try a list of things and see what works. Um, 
for that individual child or family. Um, and I guess it's important to note that there is a difference between um, a, a child who may have um, very restrictive eating because of something like autism spectrum disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder or um, ARFID, um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So it's a little bit different for them. It's not just about giving them foods over and over again. They may refuse it forever. So I think other children where it's potentially just them trying to stamp their authority in the situation and, and say no to things, avoiding any kind of pressure to try things um, or force feeding practices would be really important to start with. Um, but ensuring that that child is still exposed to those foods over and over and again um, and seeing that everyone else around them is enjoying them, um, that it's they can be fun um, and just allowing them to be exposed in a non-pressuring way. Um, one sort of approach I take is is always providing at least one food that you know the child will eat, one food that um, they've tried before um, and is sort of okay with it, um, and then a new food. Um, so at least you know that there are foods there available to them that they will eat. Um, and then you can avoid trying to compensate with those less healthy foods after the meal because you're concerned that they haven't eaten anything. At least they've eaten something um, because they're, they've got some foods in front of them that they're okay with. Mm. And I, I think a lot of what we've said, and, and listeners might want to listen back, but there's been loads of tips sprinkled throughout this episode uh, that increase the likelihood that children will engage, you know, and, and be happy with eating vegetables, inverted commas, uh, because there's there are various ways you can make it more interesting, more dynamic, more sensory, more enjoyable. Uh, and as you said, we want to identify clearly any eating disorders or, or, or related conditions, and then that may need a much more targeted, perhaps you need an OT or a psychologist or a pediatrician involved in that. But we're talking sort of general rules here. And the point you raised there about is this... Is the refusal telling me something about, as you said, is there a specific disorder, for example, or is it telling me about the dynamic of the relationship? You know, so the child doesn't like the way I'm saying, eat your vegetables. You know, there's an authoritarian. They're just using, you know, children want to find their own autonomy. So we, how can we change that dynamic versus is it an environmental thing where we're, we're sort of saying, do what I say, not what I do. So mm -hmm. is the family not eating that and we're just telling the kid to do it or are we all on one you know, ship together. So that's, these are important things to consider. But what would be red flags for you if you're, so we talked about eating disorders there. So red flags, if you're seeing a child or adolescent with regards to potential disordered eating or an eating disorder. Yeah. So I guess obviously like very dramatic weight loss would be a red flag. Um, and we'd always investigate what's going on there. Um, any really drastic changes in the way the young person's eating? So, for example, they mentioned things like cutting out carbs or counting calories or all of a sudden, for no other explanation, they've started eating a vegan diet um, and cutting out, you know, whole sort of food groups. Um, if they're using any buzzwords, you know, clean eating or shredding, those types of buzzwords um, associated with fad dieting, um, they would be sort of red flags and you'd be trying to explore what's going on, where where are they getting their information from, um, what diet are they trying to follow. Um, any sort of fix fixation on weight, so weighing themselves daily um, and being obsessed with the numbers on the scale would be a huge red flag. Um, any kind of secretive eating um, and going through periods of restricting and then 
um, binging or feeling like they're out of control when they're eating um, or uh, sort of any secret exercising as well. So exercising for long, very extended periods, especially if it's behind their bedroom door or whatever it might be. Um, and then also sort of physiological signs as well. So um, as I said, the big weight loss, any dizziness, fatigue, hair loss, um, girls losing their period, um, all those types of things might be red flags if associated with other kind of clinical signs of um, disordered eating. Mm, yeah, and then sort of purging and those sorts of behaviours exactly, as well, yeah. so follow-up sort of post-eating behaviours that are there to compensate in some way. So when should we uh, refer a, a, a person to a dietitian versus feeling like we can, you know, we can just manage this ourselves? Yeah, so I think in a lot of situations, um, a dietitian can be helpful in a weight management context. Um, so I think the first thing to consider would be, are the family um, willing to engage at that time point? Are they ready to engage? Or are there too many other things going on um, and it's just not going to be the right place and time? And that's totally fine. Um starting the conversation, at least they know that the options there is a good first step. Um, and then there might be also other allied health professionals that might be more suited for that particular family at that time. So a psychologist or a social worker, depending what else is going on. Um, but if you feel like, you know, they're ready to make some changes with um, diet or um, they're needing some help in that area, um, you know, a dietitian referral would be appropriate. Um in terms of how to go about that, there's public options, um, community-based options, depending where the family lives, and then, of course, private options as well. Um, so Queensland is very lucky. Um, there's some really good community-based programs in Brisbane, so the Healthy Kids Club. So that's an amazing place to start if they're a local family in Brisbane. Um, a lot of local hospitals do have a dietitian that um, works in paediatrics as well. Um, so even in the more regional settings, um, there are dietitians who have paediatric experience and who accept paediatric referrals. So looking to local hospitals is a, a really good place to start for the public system. Um, and then for private options, um, the Dietitians Australia website has a find an APD, so accrediting practising dietitian, uh, sort of, um, you know, able to, to filter by uh, specialty, you know, paediatrics and look for people who have interest or expertise in weight management. Um, so there are a few different options there and obviously that's different across Australia, but um, sort of focusing just on Queensland, I think there are some options there for referral pathways. And you mentioned there around Brisbane versus other regions. So what about, Queensland's a big state, mm. so what about <laughs> in people in rural and remote communities who may not have access to... Uh, like a physical paediatric dietitian? Yeah, so I guess probably the first place would be looking to the local hospital and seeing who's there. And even if it's far away, seeing if they can offer some telehealth or phone uh, consults. Um, and then most private, well, many private dietitians would be happy to do telehealth consults as well. So if that's an option for that family, um, there's, um, you know, an option to see a private dietitian, even if they're living either private dietitians is based in a major city, at least those telehealth options are there. Um, so yeah, I think there's a couple of options, but it is it is difficult. Um, and then of course, um, if there are telehealth services available, um, having a local primary health care practitioner to be able to assess um, 
you know, things like weight and blood pressure to have that kind of physical examination as well. So having that combination, I think, works really well. Mm, yeah, and this is where there's options to set up things like case conferences under the med- Medicare item numbers where you can have a GP, an allied health or and, and a practice nurse. You're typically a team of three and they can all bill for that and then it makes it practical at least and, and reimbursed. So the final question for today, it's always a good question to end on, is any good resources for health professionals, listeners or, or pe- members of the public that you often use or you find really useful, whether it's videos or handouts or online courses or that sort of stuff? Yeah, so of course the um, health and wellbeing clinicians uh, hub is a really great resource to be able to navigate, you know, uh, all things in terms of healthy weight in in young people. Um, New South Wales Health also have a sort of similar kind of hub for health professionals as well. They provide some good resources um, in terms of how to approach weight in a sensitive way. Um, they've got some good videos on there about having those difficult conversations, um, and they've got some good patient facing resources as well. Um, I really love all the Good Start resources. So Good Start, the as part of uh, Children's Health Queensland, um, they provide some really good uh, client-facing resources um, tailored to Maori and Pacific Islander families. Um, so they're really useful um, and really engaging and vibrant and colourful. So I really like those ones. Um, and then it's also if you if you've got an interest in weight management, um, a good conference to go to would be um, the ANZUS conference, which is held annually. So I always find that really useful for updates in terms of the weight management space. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots of resources out there, um, and this is about sort of finding the right ones for your family or for your needs. Mm, Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tash. It was excellent to hear your expertise and experience there. And uh, we'll join everyone at the next episode where we will have some questions about physical activity and movement, which is the natural progression from this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thanks for having me.